0: The COVID-19 pandemic has grounded most of these machines, these airplanes that carry us to faraway places for vacations or conferences or other work-related meetings. These planes, however, will be flying again one day, emitting greenhouse gases, more than half a ton of carbon dioxide per person on a flight from New York to London. That's about as much damage to the atmosphere in a few hours as a typical Indigenous person inflicts in a whole year. And it's not even a round trip. If you want to come home, you double it. Now, we can all hope that this is changing, that distributed working is here to stay, that we'll Zoom to conferences instead of jetting to them, and that those of us who can work from home will work from home. But even if we do that, and I'm sure we will to some extent, as a freelancer, I've worked remotely for decades, it won't save the planet. Why? Because passenger flights emit a small percent of all the greenhouse gases that we humans pump into the atmosphere every year. And emissions from all transportation worldwide barely reaches 20%. While deforestation and unsustainable land use not to mention methane seeping out of melted permafrost or exposed peat bogs, all this contributes at least 30% of man-made greenhouse gases, according to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's special report on climate change and land, which I covered last August in episode 48. You know this massive lockdown we're under? Of course you do. All of these pundits celebrating the clean skies and clear water How much do you think it's really cut greenhouse gas emissions? 10%? 20%? 30%? Guess again. The answer, according to Carbon Brief, is that global emissions will be 5.5% lower this year compared to 2019. 5.5%. Another question. How deeply do we have to cut emissions if we're to prevent global temperatures from rising to the point at which climate models start going haywire and all bets are off. How deeply, in other words, do we have to cut emissions if we're to meet the Paris Agreement target of preventing global temperatures from rising to a level 1.5 degrees Celsius or 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit above pre-industrial levels? The answer, according to the United Nations Environment Program's 2019 Emissions Gap Report, which I covered in December, is 7.6% every year, including this one, through to 2030. That means if we don't cut emissions 7.6% this year, we're already behind. And it looks like we won't get there, despite having blundered into the deepest emission reduction in history. A lot of people are chatting away out there about how COVID-19 is going to magically slap the crap out of the science denial movement and accelerate efforts to meet the climate challenge. But here's the reality. I conducted a survey of green entrepreneurs. These are people who have been working to save endangered forests for a decade at least, and usually much longer for ecosystem marketplace. You know what their biggest fear was? 70% of them said that this convulsive response to COVID-19 was more likely to end up derailing or at least distracting from real solutions and the structured response that's emerging under the Paris Climate Agreement, while only 15% of them said that it could accelerate climate action. Now, that doesn't mean we can't leverage this moment to meet the climate challenge. We can leverage it, and we must leverage it but we cannot expect the moment to leverage itself. We can't expect this raw reality to automatically spark a magical epiphany, not in a world where outfits like Coke Industries are continuing to actively spread anti-science propaganda. At the same time, we can't bet on these new machines that suck carbon out of the atmosphere and infuse it into the ground or into raw material for 3D printers— I'm sure you've heard about this. It's exciting technology and it will be part of the solution in the future. I covered it in 2017 and I'll cover it again. Microsoft thinks carbon capture technology can get it to net zero emissions in the future when the company will be pulling more greenhouse gas out of the atmosphere than it puts into it. But we need to get industrial companies down to net zero or even carbon negative now. And the companies that are doing that or are close to it aren't using machines that suck carbon from the atmosphere. Dan and Yogurt is doing it by helping small farmers improve the way they manage their land so that their soil stores more carbon and produces more fruits and vegetables. I covered this, by the way, back in Episode 7 of Bionic Planet, long before soil carbon was the trendy new thing. And in February of this year, Delta Airlines said it was becoming the first climate-neutral airline in the world, meaning... Not that it was going to be flying planes that emit no greenhouse gases, because other than Bertrand Picard's solar glider, which I also covered on this show back in 2017, nothing like that exists. No, Delta said it would become climate neutral by investing in nature, by investing in programs that improve the management of forests and farms as well as wetlands. And their target date for achieving this climate neutrality isn't 2030 or 2025 or even 21 It's March 1st, 2020, two months ago. Now, they made this announcement on Valentine's Day, February 14th, before the global lockdown. But guess what? Last week on Earth Day, their CEO, Gareth Joyce, reiterated the company's net zero pledge in a LinkedIn post entitled, Sustainability is a Long Term Commitment. And he's not alone. EasyJet also pledged to become climate neutral, although not globally, also by investing in nature, and they started last year. They say they're keeping their promise. Air France, too. British Airways, as well. Now, I don't want to encourage everybody to go out and start flying again. That's not the point of this. We really should fly less. We really need to reduce emissions at the source. But the point is that all of these companies are already moving towards climate neutrality, and many are there already and they're using technology to reduce their emissions directly by shifting to renewable fuels or lighter materials or better design, but they're getting to zero by using carbon finance to offset their emissions. The question, of course, is can we trust these offsets? Do they do what they say they do? It's a question I address quite often on Bionic Planet, but it's one I address from different angles all the time. And today I'm taking a specific look at how the Verified Carbon Standard, or VCS, handles carbon accounting at different scales. Now, if that sounds boring and wonky, don't worry, because my guest, Naomi Swickert, actually makes it interesting. In fact, after speaking with her, a lot of things that used to make my head explode, well, they just make it itch a little bit. Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization... There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene.
1: We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know it's ugly face. We should put a big, fat price on it. And of course, add to that, drop the subsidies.
0: Earth, we broke it, we own it. And nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields and not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet, or is nature herself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And today we speak with Naomi Swickert, who is the chief program officer in charge of land-based offsetting standards for VERA, which is the organization that oversees the verified carbon standard, or VCS, among other initiatives. I caught up to her at year-end climate talks in Madrid while this COVID-19 idiocy was still percolating in China. So keep that in mind that this interview predates the COVID-19 pandemic. And if you're wondering why it took me so long to get this up well quite frankly i couldn't afford to do it sooner the one complaint i get most often from listeners is that i don't do enough episodes and the reason is they take time and time is money i put a lot of work into sounding like i know what i'm talking about and i want to generate more episodes but i also don't want to just phone them in if you like my work and want more of it and if you want me to improve it by maybe getting a good sound guy or just having the time to rewrite these a few times, rework them, make them better, make them more fun, then help me out by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. That's patreo ncom forward slash bionic planet. That's bionic planet, all one word, no dots or dashes patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. There you can support me for as little as $1 per episode, although more is always appreciated, and you can even put in a monthly cap. The address, again, is patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. Before we dive in, I need to define some terms for you. If you're a regular listener, I apologize for telling you stuff you've probably heard too many times already, but it will only take a few seconds. First, we talk about red. It's not the color, it's an acronym that I cover a lot on this show, and I covered it in detail in episodes 49, 50, and 51. The acronym is R-E-D-D and it stands for Reducing Emissions from Deforestation and Degradation of Forests. It essentially means using carbon finance to save endangered forests in developing countries. If you add a plus to it and call it REDD+, then you're sometimes including tree planting in developing countries or agroforestry and additional activities. If you're undertaking these activities in developed countries like the US or Europe, then it's called avoided deforestation or afforestation reforestation. Second, we distinguish in today's conversation between standalone projects and jurisdictional programs. Standalone projects usually work by addressing deforestation in a specific forest where there is a specific threat. While jurisdictional programs Cover deforestation across entire states or provinces or even countries. They're totally different animals but they have a lot in common and they can even coexist in the same place and that's called nesting where individual projects nest within jurisdictions. And all of these forest carbon programs and projects, they also exist alongside efforts to improve commodity supply chains, which we've also covered a lot on the show, but won't get into today. I mention all of this up front because when I sat down with Naomi in Madrid, she jumped right into the deep end. But don't worry, we paddle back into shallow water soon enough.
1: We have a program called the Jurisdictional and Nested Red requirements, which allows for accounting and crediting of activities in the forestry sector, especially avoided deforestation and degradation, for a few years now. And the idea of that was really to drive finance to jurisdictional programs that were seeking to transact those units in markets, as well as to integrate those activities at a project scale. What we're doing essentially now is to revise and update that to really account for where we're at now in in the red space. And things have changed significantly over the last few years.
0: I I don't really even understand how jurisdictional offsets work. I understand Mm -hmm. how a project works because you're paying a... specific person or a specific group in a specific place, but in a jurisdiction, Mm -hmm. how can there be an offset at such a large scale?
1: It's a good question. And and frankly, that's still untested. Much of the investment and the development of REDD programs, so at a national or subnational scale to date have been with donor finance money Mm -hmm. uh, or under the forest carbon partnership facility. And and those have primarily been payment for readiness activities, and they're just now getting to the point that they're signing contracts to be able to pay for results. Mm. But those are not really designed for offsets. Right. So our jurisdictional nested RED or JNR program was specifically designed to try to create market-ready offset um, offset credible units. So you're taking a similar approach to a project in the sense that you're accounting for the deforestation across a whole jurisdiction, and where you have reduced that deforestation and are able to produce an emission reduction, you could turn that into an offset credit. But there's a few additional things that you need to do to make sure that it's really ready to be offset quality rather than just a payment for results. You right. need higher level integrity in the baseline or reference level. You need to make sure that the jurisdiction has the right to those units and the ability to trade them, which you don't necessarily always have to have when it's a results-based payment. Right. So at the moment, the offsets that are available in this space are from the project level
0: yeah maybe we can unpack that just a bit because I don't think everybody knows the difference between a payments for performance and an mm-hmm. offset Good and point. Uh, do you want, do you want to explain that or should sure. I yeah
1: So a results-based payment uh, is largely being done from a donor or a multilateral organization. So for example, the Norwegians have relationships uh, with a number of countries around the world and they're expecting to see results and pay for them, but those results are not always in emission reductions. Some of those results are having the reference level in place or having policies in place or structures in place that ultimately will get us to emission reductions. So some payments have been made on that and further payments will be made On emission reductions achieved but because you're paying the country rather than taking the unit and transferring it to another entity which is then using it to offset or compensate for its emissions you can be a bit looser with the requirements or you don't necessarily need to have the unitization the serialization of the units on a traceable registry because you don't necessarily need to track who's using and retiring that unit
0: right and the reason again being that if you're making an offset you've got a company or somebody someplace who is saying we reduced our net emissions by creating this this specific emission reduction and they have to be able to have this clear cause and effect they have to be able to say that exactly. our money made this emission reduction happen mm-hmm. whereas the other way you can say oh yeah we paid we we supported this activity the emissions went down we think it helped but we're not taking any claim for it so we're not going to get really nitpicky about whether we we caused it exactly and i guess that's when I get into the question, though, is uh, when I think of a jurisdiction, there's so many actors, so many people in a jurisdiction. How do you how do you get that kind of certainty? Uh, I mean, I, I know enough about Carbon County to understand how a project works. Where you mm-hmm. go in and you you kind of map out all the drivers of deforestation, and you can say, you know, here's this patch of land. It's a patch of forest. It's in an area we've seen these actors in this place cause this kind of degradation. The same thing's happening here. We can clearly say if we don't intervene, something bad is going to happen. Mm-hmm. At the jurisdictional level, you're mostly using historical rates of deforestation, right? Or You're mm-hmm. not really doing these kind of scenarios.
1: That's right. But there's been quite a bit of science done to look at what is the best predictor of future deforestation. And they have found that the recent history is a decent predictor of future deforestation. Mm-hmm. So the issue when, when you're working at a project level is that you're trying to choose an area that has not yet been deforested. So you can't look at the historical deforestation in that exact place, Mm -hmm. or you wouldn't have anything. But in reality, the threat is very, very high because they're often on the forest frontier. So that approach doesn't really work when you're looking at a site-specific level. But at the jurisdiction, when you look at the average of deforestation, either the historical average or the historical trend, you can see a fairly decent prediction of what's likely to occur. So what's important is that those reference levels or that estimation of deforestation are revisited fairly frequently because it's it's been shown that sort of the recent past, the last five to ten years, is the best predictor of what is likely to occur when you're assessing at
0: scale. Do you do any kind of looking to see what interventions are being made to really get that, you know, that rigor down? Mm-hmm.
1: In terms of setting the reference level or the baseline, those terms yeah. usually reference levels used at a jurisdictional level, and baseline is usually used at a project level. You're you're really relying on the integrity of that reference level to ensure that you're predicting accurately what's going to happen with deforestation going forward, and then you're looking at the change. Mm-hmm. So the activity itself becomes part of how you implement and how you achieve an emission reduction at mm-hmm. a jurisdictional scale rather than part of the setting of the the baseline itself in a project you really need to look carefully at the deforestation dynamic uh, dynamics on the ground in that specific place and what you're going to do to change them at a jurisdictional scale you still need to do that but it's not built into the reference level so much as the historic information but it's really important when you go into how you're going to implement your program how you're actually going to produce emission reductions in that country, which is something that hasn't been focused on as much really Mm -hmm. at the jurisdictional scale yet, and very much needs to be.
0: Right, right, right. Now, who do you see as being the the buyers of these jurisdictional offsets? Because if a company is buying an an offset, they like to tell the story. They like to say that we, here's this beautiful forest that we intervened in, this indigenous people were there, we helped them protect their land. And that's that story isn't as charismatic when you're looking at jurisdictional offset. It's a,
1: it's a really good point. I think that for most corporates, they are far more comfortable interacting with the project scale. Partially for that reason, they really want the story. They want to be able to say, not only am I reducing my emissions, I'm also helping communities in this country. And And these projects do a lot on the ground. They're not just putting a fence around a forest and calling that an emission reduction. They're really working very deeply in communities to really understand the deforestation dynamics, change the direction of livelihoods, and make them less dependent on cutting the forest down. Mm -hmm. And so that's a really compelling story because it has, you know, oftentimes these projects are also investing in health or education or, you know, investments in in timber plantations that reduce the pressure on the forest. And those have tons of benefits for local communities. So for a corporate that's investing, particularly if they're doing so for voluntary purposes, they're really interested in that story. Now, when you transition into a a more compliance or regulatory market, like we're starting to see hopefully emerge very soon in in Mm -hmm. the aviation sector, the Corsia there when you're when you're buying for regulatory purposes there's tends to be less importance in the story because you have a regulation that has to be met so oftentimes corporates will source the least cost emissions for the majority of that portfolio they still may be really interested in having a portion of their portfolio from these really highly compelling stories when we're talking about the jurisdictional scale i think we're likely to see that be primarily of interest to countries so under the trading mechanisms in the Paris Agreement or Article 6 likely I think that that finance might flow more jurisdiction to jurisdiction when we're talking about red so there's a real opportunity there for for markets at scale.
0: Mm.
1: However, I think there are some corporates that are quite interested in the jurisdictional level because they have a huge scale to address. Yeah.
0: So That's- when
1: you're talking about, you know, some of the big emitters out there that have a huge, port, you know, footprint that they really need to address, they are interested in scale because they have such a high volume that they need to purchase. So Again, they might be interested in doing a, you know, uh, large transactions at scale, maybe with the jurisdictional level, but then also investing in site-specific activities or project activities that tell a story. So again, they can kind of blend it all together in terms of, you know, doing the right thing, meeting their regulation, going beyond that regulation to, you know, carbon neutrality in many cases, and telling a story at the same Mm. time.
0: And I guess that's where the nesting issue comes in?
1: Yes, very much so. (laughs) So what I mean, nesting, probably first to clarify is useful, right? What we're talking about is how do we integrate the these projects that happen in a specific place into jurisdictional accounting to for a few reasons. One, to avoid any double counting, and two, to make sure that these, these site-specific activities don't add up to more than is achieved at a jurisdictional level. So it's really important... And that's been an that issue, right, is not it? It's, uh, it's, it's been an issue, and I, I, I think it's important to clarify how and why it's an issue, because... The logic of the accounting uh, is we just
0: clarify, put it in plain English as well? Sure. Um, Because I I think basically what you're saying is that there are cases where you look at all these individual projects and they've each reduced their emissions based on modeling, and if you add up all of the emission reductions that they've achieved, it comes to a a higher amount than the total emission reductions in the jurisdiction itself, right? Is that... Am I getting that wrong? It sounds like... Does
1: that actually occur? I don't think we know. Does it look like that's a accru- that occurs uh-huh. because of the way that those individual uh, baselines on the reference level of the jurisdiction have come together? Yeah, we've seen that. So that's where I think it's really useful to clarify how it works. Right, right. So at a project level, what you're doing when you set the the baseline, or in other words, what would happen if I didn't implement this project on the ground? You're looking very specifically at... At the dynamics in a given area so you're looking at the level of threat of deforestation but you're also working on a small enough scale that you can do much finer grained analysis Mm -hmm. so you're using higher resolution satellite data you're using more specific emission factors in other words how much carbon is stored in this specific site so you're Mm -hmm. looking very specifically at the ecological dynamics in that place and having an accurate number of the amount of carbon that's stored in that ecosystem when you're working at a jurisdictional scale, you're often using averages, you're mm-hmm. using default factors, you're looking across an entire jurisdiction that may not be uh, nearly as fine-grained in its analysis. So oftentimes that, that you know, national or subnational level, the jurisdictional level, is, is far more conservative in its estimation because it's using less fine-grained data, so then when you try to put those th- those two things together, they don't match right. up right. because it's a it's a different type of measurement. Right. So what we're trying to do is drive more harmonization so that we don't. Raise issues of credibility, even though in reality those numbers at the project level are not necessarily wrong, and the right. jurisdictional level is not necessarily wrong. Right? We're we're confident at that level that the results are accurate. They right. just are very conservative.
0: Right. Right. Okay, that makes a lot of sense because I've I've heard this before, and I know that my own personal experience with certain projects, you know, the Sewery project is one that I, I know most closely. I need to intervene for a second here because I brought up a subject that we're going to be referencing a few more times. The Suduri Forest Carbon Project was led by an indigenous leader named Elmir Suduri of the Paite Suduri indigenous people of the Brazilian Amazon. These people lived in isolation from the outside world up until the late 1960s, when the government of Brazil began settling the remoter regions of the Amazon. I should do a whole episode on the Paites Sudiri because I know them very well. I know their story. I've spent time down there. And their story is really the story of the human race and our interrelationship with nature, our our dysfunctional relationship with nature in microcosm. At the time of first contact, the Paites Sudiri numbered 5,000 people. But more than 90% of them died of tuberculosis and smallpox, diseases that Europeans were immune to because of years of living with animals, but against which the, the Paitesurri and other indigenous people had no immunity. Then came loggers chopping the forest that the Paitesurri called home. It's a fascinating story. I wish I could go into it more here, and I really would like to go into more detail in the future. For today's show, the important thing for you to know is that in 2009, their chief, Elmir Suduri created the world's first indigenous-led red plus project using the methods that we're discussing on today's show basically they worked with consultants and outside organizations including forest trends which publishes ecosystem marketplace that's how i got to know them they mapped the drivers of deforestation the illegal logging that they were engaged in. And they came up with a baseline of deforestation that would occur if they didn't get funding to counter it. You know, what they needed was money to develop sustainable businesses like fish farming and handicrafts, and of course, monitoring the forest, hiring rangers, you know, indigenous people who would act as forest rangers. Long story short, the project worked really well. They got the money, they were developing these sustainable businesses, and then diamonds were discovered in their territory. And the models just didn't hadn't accounted for that. Suddenly, they were overrun with diamond speculators, uh, who co- colluded with some of the the same members of the Suri. These tribes are not homogenous. You know, they're just like we are. They have their good guys and their bad guys. Uh, the local authorities wouldn't help them. Eventually, the project was put on hold, and they went from being the first indigenous-led forest carbon project, great success story, to being the first forest carbon project that failed and that needed to access the VCS buffer pool, which we'll also be talking about on today's show. If you want to hear more about the Sudaree Forest Carbon Project, and if you want more Bionic Planet in general, then you can help me generate these episodes by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet that's p a t r e o n dot com forward slash bionic planet if you're on the legacy system that system is working but i can't seem to get it to work on the new website that i switched to it doesn't show up so you have to stick with patreon um, unless you're already uh, supporting me on the old system anyway there you can support me for as little as one dollar per episode And again, with a monthly cap. The address again, patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. Of course, you can also help just by accessing me through the right podcatcher. Namely, access me through the Radio Public app. That's Radio Public, like public radio, but backwards. They automatically pay me a few pennies for every listener who hears the show to the end. And that adds up. Finally, you can help just by giving me a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you hear me through. That helps, because the more stars I get, the more ears I get. The more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet this challenge. We can do it if we all work together. Now back to my interview with Naomi Swickert. We were discussing again the Suri Forest Carbon Project. And in that case, the threats were clearly higher than what people initially perceived. They didn't know that there was going to be diamonds discovered there. And they didn't know that the local authorities weren't really going to provide the law enforcement. There were so many factors that made ending deforestation there so hard. And I know a lot of projects are facing this where they have security issues. It's really a lot harder to end deforestation at these at the small scale than they realized. But at the same time, you hear this idea that the baselines are... Maybe have been set too aggressively, and 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 it turns out that's not not necessarily the case.
1: Yeah, exactly. And in Surui, you could probably say that that baseline was in fact significantly underestimated. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's a good point. I think that it also just emphasizes why this nested architecture is so important because you do need the involvement of the jurisdiction. You do need that political commitment yeah. to addressing deforestation at scale because. The Government has a, a very specific and unique role to play. They need to set the policy they need to set the regulation, the enabling environment whereby you can add on to that this private investment or you know nonprofit investment into communities that are working very specifically on those site scale dynamics and without those two things working together, you know you, you can have pressures that that make things difficult. The most dynamic system, the most effective system going forward, I think is going to be a combination of those two. Because the government can then you know make sure that the accounting is adding up at, it, at the at the governmental level set the right policies and instruments and hopefully be able to you know increasingly be able to enforce them mm. but it's also really important that we have that site level activity mm. because a government doesn't have the ability to work with every single community across its forest estate right. and oftentimes the drivers of deforestation some of them can be addressed at a national level so for example indonesia's moratorium on logging that's mm-hmm. a great example of what government can do but they don't have the ability to say that in this particular community what's driving that deforestation and it might be a completely different driver it might be more slash and burn agriculture and it's not about you know logging it might be more community resources so by working specifically in that site and with that community, you can help the community members decide how they want that future to change and what types of activities they would like to see in order to help leave the forest standing. And that's very, very difficult for a government to do across across right, the whole right. country. So the combination of those two things can help us to drive significant finance to local areas, to local communities in combination and, in, and and hopefully harmonized with what the government is trying to do.
0: And that's, again, the big challenge, how do you harmonize this? Right. And uh, how do you harmonize it? That's, uh,
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good question, yeah. one we've been working on for a long time. <laughs> you know, when we started out, we had this idea that the most effective way to do that would be to essentially spatially model where deforestation was occurring across the jurisdiction. So in other words, when you're, de- when you're coming up with that, that reference level or the deforestation at a jurisdictional scale, you're also looking at predicting where the deforestation would occur. That, unfortunately, is, is far too complex for most mm-hmm. governments. You know We need to meet them at an earlier stage to, to make sure this is really viable and that we're, you know, we're driving most of the finance into mitigation and not into consultants designing models, right? Right, yeah, so, yeah. That's one of the the changes that's really occurred is really just thinking, you know, we need need to simplify it. And so what we're thinking now and and what's in our, our consultation that was just released is that instead of doing this sort of complicated modeling, we're saying let's start with the jurisdictional reference level and then allocate that down. And you can use a really, really simple approach to do that. You know, one example would be to say if you map where deforestation has occurred in the last, you know, year or last five years, and then you just say, it's most likely that the next set of deforestation is going to occur within one kilometer of that. Mm
0: -hmm. Because the roads are there and everything. Because the roads and access Mm -hmm. and
1: patterns of deforestation, they tend to expand out from existing deforestation, Mm -hmm. right? So if you just use that as a model, then a project that's in a specific place would say, okay, I'm within this distance of this previous deforestation that's going to be my baseline going forward. That's one approach, it's an example. In reality, there's a few more factors that are right. generally used, but we can make those very simple and still hopefully end up with the ability to really recognize where deforestation is occurring in that jurisdiction. Because the challenge is you could take an even more simple approach. You could just say, okay, I've got you know 500 hectares of deforestation across my whole jurisdiction. And I've got, you know, 200 hectares left. I'm just going to divide that out, call it good. Right, right. right. The problem with that is you would then be saying that the deforestation rate is the same in every plot of every parcel across your whole country, which we know is not the case. Right. right? There are hotspot areas. There are places that are extremely threatened and there are those that are are very remote and, and don't face as much threat. So we wanna make sure that we're driving the incentive to invest in places with a high threat of deforestation, Mm -hmm. rather than driving an incentive to invest somewhere that there's there's no threat of deforestation. So we still need these approaches to understand where that deforestation is occurring, and then use that to set the project baseline. Mm -hmm. So by starting with the jurisdiction and what they've already done and allocating it down, we can make sure that everything adds up. You Mm -hmm. don't have a window that is greater than what is happening at a jurisdictional scale,
0: and, th- and that's an issue that's come up a lot too. Because is that you know you have these areas where Indigenous people live, mm-hmm. they have they've always been considered the guardians of the forest, and they are they they maintain the forest, and they don't really get rewarded for it. And you know they need they have healthcare issues, and they have they also have temptation. Mm-hmm. I've seen it happen. I'm sure you have too. Where, you know, they feel the need to sell off part of their forest or let loggers in, or what happened with the Suri. How do you deal with situations where these indigenous people or these other forest people have been such good fo- stewards of the forest and now all this finance is flowing into areas where people have maybe not been very good stewards and the people who have been good stewards are not getting any of it? Is that Can that be dealt with within this system?
1: Absolutely. and And, you know, first and foremost, I would say we absolutely need to make sure that indigenous communities are rewarded for for what they've done we have a number of projects that are in fact with indigenous communities Mm -hmm. so i think it's a bit of a misnomer to say that none of the finance is flowing to them but of course we need to scale that finance significantly Mm -hmm. and but there's there's sort of two different ways you can do that one is by directly rewarding where the emission reductions are occurring and again for the most part, those are in areas that are quite threatened. They're the ones on the forest frontier. Mm. Now, are indigenous communities in those places? Absolutely. So, for some of them, they have the opportunity to really work directly in their areas that are quite threatened and establish projects or programs with the government to reduce emissions and be directly rewarded for that on a per ton basis. That's mm. what we see in projects, that's what we see in an offset type option, right? Right. But there's also ways to to drive finance that aren't based on that and might be more appropriate where those indigenous communities are conserving an area that is less threatened or they have a lot less historical deforestation because they've done such a great job. And that might better be done through benefit sharing mechanisms. So some of the finance from from the achievement of these programs can be directed to those communities under a benefit-sharing plan while you still make sure that you're also rewarding those that are directly undertaking activities in high-threat areas. Mm -hmm. So those don't have to be mutually exclusive. You can do both, and a good structure that that a government can really put in place would, would do both of those things.
0: Which is kind of what the state of Acre. I was just going to mention Brazil, (laughs) yes. Mm -hmm.
1: So Brazil has taken a really interesting approach, not just Acre, but the Amazon states together, where they've essentially undertaken an allocation, not just of the the reference level, but to figure out who should benefit from that. And so there's a portion that's sort of reserved for indigenous communities. There's a portion reserved for government. There's a portion reserved for uh, protected areas and for private sector. I might be missing something. And I think
0: there is is one other, these agro- there's one other yeah there is another constituent but yeah. yeah
1: um but point being they've they've already said look this is really important to us a you know the government needs to pay for the program so they obviously need to uh, to accrue some of that the indigenous communities are extremely important and need to benefit from this, so we're gonna reserve a portion for them. And then if you do wanna do uh, a private project, we we have an envelope for that. Mm-hmm. We recognize that there is a benefit to attracting outside finance mm-hmm. for mitigation, especially in these complicated areas or on private land where where that landowner has the ability to make a choice about what they're doing. And it's really important to make sure that those that are that are changing their habits, that are sometimes taking a financial hit by not undertaking an activity that would have deforested, get rewarded for that. Okay. Otherwise, you remove the incentive to do so.
0: Yeah, yeah. Or you just don't help them. I mean, it's the you know, yeah. interesting thing I've found is they, their incentive is to keep the forest, but they have needs. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. And uh,
0: they, they suffer when they're without health care.
1: We cannot expect people to just, as much as they might really want to maintain that forest, people have needs and we yeah. cannot just tell people you can't deforest if mm. that's going to undermine their livelihood right yeah. fundamentally we have to change the trajectory of development in these places in order to to achieve something at the same time that we're not having harm on local communities yeah
0: and again the the, the big issue on that is people often ask why should we be paying them and i think the answer is you know we created the mess and yes. <laughs> we should be you know, we have an obligation yeah yeah another question another constituent uh or constituency that's that's out there are these project developers because these guys you know a lot of them have taken on they've taken huge risks they've taken they've borrowed money they've got investors they've gone out and they've proactively saved big patches of of the forest and they're not exactly rolling in dough right now either they're they're there's they they've been struggling the last few years and now that the markets are kind of coming around they're able to sell their offsets but there's a lot of concern among some of these project developers who who did go out there and proactively take action that that if these jurisdictional programs kick in, their offsets are not going to be recognized anymore. Mm -hmm. Is this something you guys are trying to... Because you you need to make sure that they need to know... You have to send a signal to people like that, that that they're not going to be left in the lurch. Mm -hmm. Uh, Absolutely.
1: I think it's really important that we recognize the need to to have some continuity. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course investors know there's a risk and there's political risk around the world to changing in regulations Mm. that that private investors are are accustomed to yeah but that said particularly when we're talking about the red space it's not just about that investment right it's it's far more about the activity and the impact on the ground Mm. so these investments have gone to preserving really critical forest areas around the world so if we cut off that investment tomorrow we potentially undermine the commitments that they've made to local communities and the protection measures that they've put in place for those forests. So, we're not just talking about cutting off finance or right. cutting off somebody's bottom line, which you know, instead what what's more important is really that we're not cutting off the impact that they've been yeah, having. Yeah,
0: all the progress will backslide. These exactly. these huge areas that are protected now will suddenly may, be unprotected. They no yeah.
1: longer be. So, yeah. I think it's really important to integrate them. At the same time, we also have to recognize that that governments are responsible for the overall the overall outcome and mm. with governments now setting their own nationally determined contributions or goals for mitigation, they need to be able to accurately account across the whole jurisdiction and, and ensure that it all adds up. So there is a need to come together and there's a need to find sort of a middle ground that might be more conservative than the original estimation and projects, but also still Provides sufficient finance to them to continue so that they can continue to protect those areas and deliver to communities. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's exactly what this set of, of guidance and options that we've just put out in our consultation is about. That's what nesting is about. Mm-hmm. It's about coming up with viable ways to bring those two scales together in a way that ensures the integrity of the accounting, ensures that the projects are in support of the government goals, But that we're still able to drive finance to mitigation Mm -hmm. on the ground
0: Mm -hmm. now i know i know you've just put this out there but you know when we did the state of voluntary carbon market support we found this huge increase in red finance in 20 2018 and it almost all almost the entire increase came from peru and it was because of the nesting program that's being done there. and i guess i'm not clear on that that's the the, they were all uh vcs ccb but was this your nesting, or was this a government initiative how um, what, what was it what exactly was that, and how does it relate? What lessons are in that that you know, yeah, can... so
1: there's a couple of countries that have come quite far already in their approach to nesting, so Peru and Colombia have kind of been leading the way, mm-hmm. and Peru has set in place a number of regulations and concepts around how they're intending to integrate projects into their government approach. They're still kind of figuring out the, the last details of that, and mm. and particularly this allocation element I was talking about earlier, how do you allocate down from the jurisdictional reference level to what does a project uh, mm. achieve in, and what's the project baseline in that context? So because they knew there was a lack of, of full clarity on that, they said, we know that the projects need certainty. We know that the projects need recognition and a transitional period. And they, in fact, issued a letter to those projects that said, we recognize that you Exist and are legitimate, and we recognize that you can use your existing project baseline for a certain period of time. And that gave the investors the certainty that the units, uh, the credits being produced from those projects up through, I think it's through the end of 2020, it might be, yeah, I think it's through the end of 2020, are are going to be fully accounted for by the government. So mm-hmm. they will deduct that from what the government has achieved and ensure there's no double counting. So that was a big step. So even though it's not yet a fully nested architecture, they're working on that and they plan to have that in place by 2021, it gave the certainty that those units would not be double counted and mm-hmm. that was fundamental to the investment. And that's why we've seen so much go into Peru. So. I think it's a really powerful example mm-hmm. of how once we get this architecture in place and have clarity over how the accounting at both scales is going to be implemented and that the government, you know, is, is recognizing these units and interested in continuing that private sector investment because it helps them achieve their targets. It helps them address deforestation. That can drive significant finance. It's very attractive to a private sector actor that wants to invest in this mm. to have that certainty.
0: Right, right. And another area of uncertainty is what happens when something goes bad. I know with the, the Suri project, diamond miners came in, destroyed more forests than they, they had saved, and, and they had to tap into the VCS buffer pool. And at the same time, we have all these fires going on in the Amazon and, and the Congo area too. In Indonesia. Too, in Indonesia. So what happens? You've got, you've, you've got these projects you've got this money going into it and then what happens if a fire comes along i guess there's two mm-hmm. questions is you know how does or maybe they're related is is mm-hmm. does the buffer pool handle the fires what happens if there's if yeah. there's something catastrophic like this how do you make sure the money isn't just right not the money not going up in smoke but how do you how do you make sure that you're still preserving the forest when you've got all these natural forces. Yeah,
1: you know, it's challenging, right? But I think there's two parts to it. There's how does the buffer system work? And then Mm. there's what's actually happening on the ground. So in terms of how it works, essentially what we do, there's a a tool called the non-permanence risk tool, and it's applied to every project at validation and at every verification, and it assesses the risk that something is going to undermine that that place or or the, the carbon stocks on which those units are based. And we use that to determine a percentage of units that are put aside in a global buffer pool. And mm-hmm. we're pooling across all the projects across all the countries. So in the case that you do have a loss, like what happened in Surui, we can then use the buffer to compensate for any credits that have been lost on the ground, making sure that the investment that was made in the credit is still real that that emission reduction was still real so if you have lost on the ground 100 tons for example we're pulling 100 tons out of the buffer and canceling them so they've right. never been used by anyone else right making sure that there's still been that same number of units or or tons of emission reduction have occurred in the field so that is how we really make sure that the emission reductions that are that are bought and sold and used by companies are, are are permanent
0: mm-hmm. and the amount, real quick the in the amount the amount that is paid into the buffer pool is pretty significant too it, right it, it's like 15 20 percent sometimes mm-hmm, or? yeah
1: yeah it can be a lot more than that but the, yeah, the average is around there and yeah it's a significant part of the the investment for a project to mm-hmm. put this into the buffer pool the other thing that I think is really interesting to talk through is is how effective the projects have actually been at stopping some of this so mm-hmm. we do have examples where you know, they just weren't able to address the forces. And when you're talking about diamonds, it's very difficult to overcome that, right? But when we're talking about forces like fire, so we saw this year a huge increase in fires in in Brazil and in Indonesia, and all of our projects are required to submit a report if they lose anything in the field. But we took the extra step this year to do an analysis ourselves of the whole portfolio in in some of those hotspot countries, looking at... What, what was the fire's potential impact on our projects and our portfolio mm-hmm. and ultimately the buffer system and, and overall integrity? And what we initially found was that there was a significant number of our projects that had fires very close by. And so we, you know, we sort of looked at, you know, do we need to be concerned about this? We ran some analysis. No, our buffer pool was, was healthy and could cover even if we lost all those projects, but it was still significant. We went back again more recently so six months later and found that in reality at that point less than one percent of our projects were actually at risk and when we started looking at specific projects in some cases they were ringed by fire hotspots, but the project itself was totally intact or it might have had a few small fires or small areas burn but when you compared it to the surrounding area you could really see a dramatic difference and 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 so they've been incredibly effective at protecting those really critical areas. And so, it, it yeah, it was really interesting to see that it's, it's working, it's working yeah. on the ground. And the, the buffer system is maintaining its integrity. The projects are maintaining their integrity. So there will be some losses, right? We're, we're dealing with incredibly difficult forces and we're right. dealing with nature and the unpredictability yeah. of that and increases in climate change and all of that. It, what's critical is that we design the system in a way that that if there are those losses, they can be compensated for, and then that's how the, the buffer system really works. Wow.
0: Just when you when you saw that these projects were not getting burned, is, is that because these are not wildfires? It's because because these are fires set by man, and they just, they, they just weren't letting people in, or were they actually actively fighting the fires with water and stuff like that?
1: It's a bit of both. So oftentimes what happens is that the fires initially are set in a controlled way, but they get out of control. You know, it gets windy or it's very dry Mm. and they spread. And that's when we really see the big damaging fires across the tropics. What the projects are often doing on the ground is having a fire break Mm -hmm. and then they're having fire spotters. Uh, And so in in one of the projects we were looking at carefully, they had both of those things in place. They had Mm -hmm. put people on the ground and, and are employing community members to be fire spotters. And so when there was a localized fire, they were able to go and respond directly to that where it was inside the, the, the project area or, or nearby, right along their frontier. And so essentially fire management was, was very successful. And they're working with the communities that are inside the project area to not use the controlled burning as the way that they're clearing land so that they're not causing those fires inside the project. So they've really changed the way that people work and, mm-hmm. and that's been quite effective.
0: Oh, fascinating yeah and now we're we're running out of time unfortunately here, but uh, did you have anything you wanted to say in closing, anything we didn't touch on that you think is important, or have we hit the the I big issues? Here?
1: I think we've hit on the big issues yeah I, I, I think you know at the end, at the end of the day, what we're really trying to do is drive finance to the most mitigation that we can on the ground as quickly as possible, and there's multiple ways to do that mm-hmm. and I think what that, that's really important that we are driving finance to different scales and different types of activity, both at the government level and the project level if we really wanna make this successful in the long term.
0: Okay, great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Naomi Swickert of VERA and the Verified Carbon Standard wrapping up this episode of Bionic Planet, the first episode that I've managed to produce in over a month. If you like Bionic Planet and you want more and better episodes, then you can help me generate them by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet that's dot ncom forward slash bionic planet bionic planet all one word no dots or dashes there you can support me for as little as one dollar per episode and with a monthly cap obviously the more the better if you can afford more you know give it to me <laughs> the address again is patreon.com forward slash bionic planet Finally, you can help by giving me a five-star review on whichever podcast you hear me through. This helps because the more stars I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet this challenge. We can do it if we all work together. And that wraps up today's show. I'm Steve Zwick, Lockdown in Chicago. Thanks for listening.